Today on The Solar Podcast, Dave is speaking with Andrew McCullough, Health Resiliency Advisor at Direct Relief. Join us as they discuss providing solar energy access for disaster response and vulnerable communities, installing solar microgrids at health facilities, and partnering with for-profit solar companies for relief efforts. Let's get started on The Solar Podcast. Well, I'd like to welcome everyone back to The Solar Podcast. I'm Dave Anderson, the host. I'm thrilled to be joined today with Andrew McCullough. Andrew McCullough is the health resiliency advisor for a company called Direct Relief. We're going to get into that. He spent a significant amount of his time during, or a significant portion of his career working on disaster relief, emergency relief, and we're going to talk about that. We in On The Solar Podcast, we've spent so much time talking about the, um, you know, maybe more capitalistic adventures or the entrepreneurial ventures parts of solar, but I think this is an underrepresented uh, topic on the solar podcast, talking about the impact, particularly to the developing or to the emergency relief efforts that happen as a result of solar and the benefit that solar brings there. So really thrilled to have Andrew on the podcast with us today. Andrew, welcome to the podcast. I'm sure that I, I missed some critical parts of your bio- biography as part of that introduction. I'd love uh, if you wouldn't mind giving our listeners a little bit of an overview about who you are and, and some of the things you're particularly passionate about. Sure. Thanks so much, Dave. It's really an honor to be here. And yeah, you made your great point at the start. Um, I've worked for most of my career um, responding to what I now call unnatural disasters uh, that occur all across the world. Um, I, for an organization, uh, a nonprofit organization called Direct Relief, it's the third largest charity in the country, uh, largest in California, distributes about $2 billion worth of medicine and medical supplies every year to 100 countries in all 50 U.S. states. And so I spent the... First, I spent two years living in Haiti after the earthquake in 2010 and have pretty much been on the ground in every major disaster since. And so I think what I bring to this is the connection of uh, natural disasters, um, power loss, and the impact that has on people's health. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, so um, you're certainly world-traveled. You've spent a lot of time, it looks like a couple of years in Haiti, right after the earthquake that really ravaged that nation, that country. And then more recently, you spent some uh, significant time in Puerto Rico after the Hurricane Maria. Um, how does a person find themselves working in this space at all? Like, wh- what's your journey? How did you arrive as a specialist in emergency response and disaster relief? Yeah, good question. And I... Uh... I wish I had actually a better answer, but I think I was always interested in finding a way in my career that I could help people. And I don't know exactly where that came from. Um, I was a philosophy of ethics uh, major in college, and I had this really strong belief about, you know, uh, the duty to sort of help other people, especially those that have less. And so I, when I finished college at UC Santa Barbara, I went and got an internship at the Peace Corps in Washington, D.C., thought I wanted to join the Peace Corps, ended up coming back to Santa Barbara, and it was right after the Asian tsunami hit at around Christmas time in 2005, I believe. Um, And I walked into Direct Relief and just offered to volunteer because I wanted to do something to help. And at the time, um, they put me in, I'm a big guy, and I said, can you lift 50 pounds? I said, yeah, so they put me in the warehouse shipping out medicine and medical supplies to, you know, uh, the places that were hit by uh, that type, um, that tsunami, uh, Thailand, 
et cetera. And it, I worked my way up. I became the warehouse manager. And then when the earthquake in Haiti hit in 2010, they said, would you go down there and open up a warehouse for us? And so we can ship, you know, the vast quantities of medicine that they needed in Haiti at the time. And so I did, and it was supposed to be six weeks. I ended up kind of back and forth for about two years. And, you know, strangely, I think was my entry into this power issue, actually, because 85% of the country of Haiti doesn't have power on a regular basis. Uh, and so I, I saw even at the time these very innovative solutions to power. I, I literally went to a barber who powered his um, razor, electric razor, with one solar panel um, mm -hmm. connected to a little car battery. And I lived in a house that had a bank of car batteries, lead-acid batteries, that was powering the house at night with solar during the day. So, you know, very innovative solutions. And that was back in 2010 in a very poor country. It's also where my hatred of diesel generators came about because I live next to one that ran 24-7 and was constantly breaking. And it was loud and dirty and noisy. And um, But it's what they need to operate there. Yeah. Well, fantastic experiences I'm sure that you've had. I'd love if you wouldn't mind sharing with us some of the stories you've seen. I mean, when you're coming into, particularly after like Hurricane Maria or right after the earthquake that really ravaged, I mean, just ravaged Haiti, what are some of the things that you saw at the ground level and uh, that really kind of shaped your perspective on the importance of electricity, just having access to energy? in terms of the impact to uh, both socially and economically to the people that were in those countries or in those areas, I should say, Puerto Rico. <laughs> yeah. So my experience ended up, and again, it was Haiti, but then it was, you know, Typhoon Haiyan in the Philippines, the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. So not all, you know, some were climate born, some were sort of um, disease born, but, and then in the U S from hurricane, you know, I started right after Katrina. Um, and if anyone's seen or read the book, five days of Memorial about Memorial hospital, uh, in new Orleans that lost power after hurricane Katrina, um, that's when people died in that hospital, 82 people died because the generator flooded and it wasn't, it's typically how it is in our country after a disaster. It's not typically the event itself that leads to the loss of life. It's typically the aftermath of infrastructure and and power loss that leads to deaths and it was the same case uh it, it, at this in this hospital they survived the hurricane but then came the flooding generators on the bottom floor which they're not allowed to be anymore in hospitals lost power and the heat and the severe conditions of those people they couldn't evacuate and the 82 people died and that's that's sort of my experience is something happens. Um, it's horrible, but, but it hasn't yet sort of led to loss of life that comes later. Same thing in hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico. Initially the, the death toll was 64. And then the Harvard study that came out later was over 3000. And that again was largely attributed to power loss. And so, but I kept seeing after Hurricane Sandy to Dorian to Michael to Florence and in, in Texas to Florence in North Carolina to, to Irma uh, to Harvey in Houston. It was this 
extended power loss that people who are vulnerable, meaning they're old, they're young, they're unhealthy, they're poor. Uh, we know the factors that make people vulnerable. They can't withstand those extended power outages um, because they need cooling or they need a medical device charged or they need their medicine. And that's what led to the deaths in Puerto Rico as well. And so that's when Direct Relief got involved with installing solar battery microgrids at the health facilities in Puerto Rico because they all had generators, but that didn't mean they had power because right. what's the hardest thing to get in a disaster? Fuel, number one. Two, they're on an island, so it makes it even harder. And three, the generators aren't supposed to run 24-7 for months on end. And so parts started to break, fuel ran out, uh, and they couldn't find people to f who knew how to fix these things because everyone was dealing with their own issues. And so when I was there, the number one thing all these health facilities said is, that can never happen again. We can never go through that experience again. Our first priority is getting reliable power. And it was, you know, it wasn't generators. So what's left? It's, it's microgrids. Yeah. I think all too often we spend a lot of our time talking about the viability or importance of solar in the context of, is it financially viable? But I think that there's a whole nother component that we're talking about here, which is just grid stability, the microgrid stability, the durable good that is electricity that's important that we can provide clean access. And, and, and for all those people that are really opponents of anything, kind of call it ESG, the environmental, the social, the governance, I think that it, there, there's probably too much emphasis placed at times on the environmental. And I don't know if you can put too much emphasis, but I think there's a lot of emphasis put on the E part. But the social part of it, the S, is so critical as part of this ESG um, you know, movements and the things that we're doing. So the social impact of providing clean, renewable, or just clean, or just any electricity, uh, access to electricity is a critical component. Um, so, so maybe kind of just talking a little bit more about that. So are, are these like mobile units that you're bringing in that then leave after a disaster? Is that some of it? Or is it, is it really more setting up an infrastructure that's going to be durable, sustainable forever for these health organizations in these um, either developing or uh, areas that are often or all too often impacted by these, as you would call it, unnatural disasters. Well, how, how are you sort of thinking about it in terms of direct relief and in terms of like, what, what, how should we be thinking about it socially? Yeah. And I think you made a good point about how we've sold solar, not sold it uh, as a financial benefit only or, or an environmental and financial. And I think there's, I think I agree with you, the social component and the, not recognizing the, the social vulnerabilities of certain sectors of our population has been a missed uh, element. And when, when we talk about it, finance, finance is like less important than the sustainability aspect because medical facilities have no other choice than to be able to stay open in a disaster and or all times in a grid outage because of heat waves, right? That's happening now. We're in the July was the hottest month on record right. in recorded history. Um, there was a report, uh, about if, if the city of Phoenix lost power, uh, because of a heat wave, they estimate 800,000 people would need to go to the ER. Uh, and there's only 3000 beds in all of Phoenix emergency rooms. So the point is these medical facilities and, and maybe, maybe unique 
technically somewhat medical facilities, but I'd also put elderly care facilities, nursing home facilities, these places that people who are vulnerable need to go to for cooling or medicine or charging medical devices. Um, those can no, cannot afford to go down. And for so long, generators have been the answer. And I'm not saying we get rid of generators, but we add these other elements that are cleaner and more reliable to the mix. But I'm sorry, I, uh, I, I, I digressed on your No, question. no, you're great. That's exactly <laughs> what I was talking about. Well, yeah, so I think what Direct Relief is doing, we started with the, mo the mobile portable. That was where we started. We started, we, we actually had towable generators. I looked for years to try to find a rapidly deployable um, mic, like a small microgrid you could put on an airplane and it could get to another country and power like a, a tent clinic. It was always hard with the batteries and the flying them. <laughs> a container, an ocean container, which is how we often ship medicines, is too slow in a disaster. And so we've really moved to permanent, you know, rooftop solar and backup battery on the on the medical facility. Um, and so we're affixing solar and batteries and we're doing it in places where we know are one most likely to be hit by natural disasters or power loss. And two have are in an area where because social vulnerabilities are tracked down to the county and census track level, these are, like I said, things like um, old, young, poor, if you don't speak the uh, predominant language, and they've actually tracked it to find out that the most vulnerable areas to a, a medically significant power loss event, which means over eight hours, because over eight hours is when medical devices lose their power and their batteries, when you need cooling if you're hot, are Louisiana, Arkansas, Alabama, and northern Michigan. And so, like, we know the areas that are critically important to focus on, but, you know, much of the country. I live in California. There's 180,000 people in California registered with an at-home medical device mm -hmm. that needs power. And we have these PSPS events, these public safety power shutoffs where they turn off the power when the wind blows. And uh, there's no plan for these people at their homes, especially if then when they try to get somewhere, the medical facility also doesn't have. No, I think you're hitting a critical uh, point here, just even here at home in the United States, where for the most part, we've been the beneficiaries of a fairly stable grid system and access to electricity is fairly abundant. Uh, we have these experiences where it's either rolling brownouts because it's just really hot temperatures, too many people are running their air conditioners, it's, t it's difficult to keep up, or instances like you meant, uh, mentioned, these public safety uh, shutoffs where uh, the wind starts to blow and the, and leaving the leaving electricity running through those lines that ultimately can get blown over and cause fires and uh, the, the terrible tragedy that happened in Paradise, California, where an entire city burnt to the ground as a result of a of a, of a high windstorm uh, that blew over electric and caused an electrical fire that that ran rampant through the city and and it was just a terrible tragedy. And yeah, and there are all of these people that it could be something as small as maybe, and I don't want to, uh, I don't want to diminish any of these medical instruments as life saving, but uh, you know something like a CPAP where people need to sleep with uh, 
or something more critical like oxygen machines, or in some instances, even more critical at-home dialysis, these sorts of things. I mean, these can be really, really critical things that are life-saving. Um, but that's here in the United States. Across the world, there are as many as maybe seven or 800 million to a billion people that don't have any access to electricity or very limited access to electricity. And uh, I, I think you, uh, the, the effort that your organization goes through is critical. Maybe you can help me understand, how is it funded? It's a nonprofit. How is it funded? How's it, how are... How are the targets chosen? I mean, obviously, when there's a disaster, that's where you go. Um, but the preemptive stuff is the thing that I think we really need to try to be focused on, right? So anything that we can do to make sure that when a disaster happens, that we're well prepared. How does direct relief and how do you, Andrew, sort of think about that and, and, and prioritize the limited resources I'm sure that you have access to right now? Yeah, that's a really good question and almost a nearly impossible one to answer. As you mentioned, globally, they would... Like USAID, um, it was really during COVID recognized that there's 10,000 medical facilities in sub-Saharan Africa that don't have reliable access to power or just don't have power, period. And that came out during COVID because the COVID vaccines, as everyone knows, require refrigeration. And in some cases, ultra cold freezing. And that's, that's sort of the future. Um, I have heard a statistic that 50% of new prescription drugs that will be coming out in the future will require what they call cold chain, which means it, it needs to stay temperature controlled in refrigeration. So if you're a medical facility overseas and you don't have power or you don't have reliable power, you can't maintain those medications. They go bad and they become useless. And when the COVID vaccine was rolling out to these countries, because we all recognize now, which or I hope we're starting to recognize now that we are an interconnected society globally. Like uh, if COVID is in China, it we saw it, it came here very quickly. Uh, it, I saw it personally during the Ebola outbreak in 2014. I came home from Sierra Leone and Liberia back to my, I flew into JFK, they gave me a cell phone and every day for the next 30 days, they'd call me in my public health department to check my temperature because it was it was this huge fear that someone was going to bring Ebola back home. And so we know now that we're interconnected, so we need to address this issue globally. Where Direct, direct Relief is funded through charitable donations, it's 100% privately funded, no federal, no federal funding. Uh, it's one of the most efficient charities there is, 100% rating on Charity Navigator, has been doing a lot of this work is doing this work in Ukraine right now um, with power with because hospitals in Ukraine are losing power. It's one of these now instruments of war. And so actually there, there we're helping install batteries um, and solar in Ukraine. We did it in the Bahamas after Hurricane Dorian. So it kind of comes about in the aftermath of a disaster, as you mentioned. But to get in front of it is now what we're trying to do in the United States where we can say, okay, these are the areas that we can predictably say are gonna lose power and is where the most vulnerable people in our country live. We were a part of this amazing program in New Orleans where a community organization called Together New Orleans is trying to set up what they call community lighthouses, which is a hundred community facilities in the city of New Orleans where no one is more than a 15 minute walk away 
from a lighthouse that has solar battery backup. So in subsequent hurricanes and subsequent power outages, nearly everyone who is somewhat mobile can get to one, mostly because for cooling, because we saw after Hurricane um, Ida hit New Orleans, people died again because of heat. We saw it in Texas when the, when the, during the 2022 freeze that happened, the cold snap, 50 people died. That was also a power issue. Um, so there's these places where we can plan for, but just just the addressable market that Direct Relief is trying to serve is like, it's like $2.6 billion would be needed to put a microgrid on all these community health centers that we're looking at. So it's a big investment, but one that's clearly worthwhile. Yeah, yeah. And to your point, I mean, I think it's... Uh... It's these natural disasters that lead us oft oftentimes to mobilize, even from a from a for-profit perspective. Uh, you take a look at Texas after the big freeze, as they oftentimes call it. Um, the it, Texas has become the number one residential solar market in the country, you know. And and uh, before that, they were a, uh, an emerging market, but certainly not the largest. And now California and Texas are fairly similar on par uh, with each other in terms of residential deployment. Um, now that being said, how does direct relief work with, or think about these for-profit organizations that are also, um, I think, uh, helping, uh, socially by deploying significant amounts of solar and storage, renewable storage around the world. How does direct relief work with these sort of for-profit organizations? Um, and, or do you, I should say. Yeah, I think. Directly partners very well with private companies. We've partnered with the medical industry for years on the receiving medical donations. We've partnered with transportation companies like FedEx to get the products around the world. We've, we've become efficient because we try to model ourselves after private industry. I think a lot, a long time nonprofits have gotten some pass for doing something in a worse way because they're doing it for the right reasons. And directly took the opposite approach, which is we got to do it in the most efficient way because we're using donor dollars. So we, we have to operate just like any commercial in, uh, entity. And so we run a 200,000 square foot warehouse full of medicine that operates just like an Amazon distribution center. And so I think we, we look to partner with companies, um, try to partner with companies. Often it's on, sort of the equipment or, or donation side of things, there hasn't emerged, I would say, yet a equivalent in this industry of someone that's going to say, hey, we're going to donate to you, you know, 200 <laughs> batteries that you can use for your projects. Because I think the market is so tight and supply chain is so tight. You're the expert on this. I'd very much to hear what mm -hmm. you would think. But, and I think d old used, you know, 200 watt solar panels is not probably, which sometimes do get donated, like are not probably, a, we haven't done that yet because I don't think that's a really efficient way to go. So I think there's yet to emerge what the business sort of partner on the, like on the equipment side would be. And then the developer side, I think it's, I don't think it's a competition. I think typically developers haven't focused on these nonprofit these sort of mid to small scale commercial medical facilities that are mostly nonprofits in poor communities. It just hasn't been a, a sought after market. I think the Inflation Reduction Act now has been this amazing 
change to the dynamic because they're all nonprofits, because they're in low-income communities. Many of them are in Justice 40 communities. Many of them are energy communities. There's these rebates that, that are going to help scale because the costs go down. Yeah. Well, I certainly can't speak for around the world, but I, I can talk about it pretty extensively um, here at home in the United States. And I, I think one of the sort of areas that the nonprofits like Direct Relief are really disadvantaged, like in New Orleans and, and some of the at-home infrastructure improvements and upgrades that we're making, uh, they're, they're similarly disadvantaged in the same way that industry has been disadvantaged in that there's great tailwinds at the federal level, but uh, at the local level to deploy these things, it's really expensive and there's a lot of friction. Um, and and you know, unfortunately, it's not as easy as just saying, hey, this hospital needs uh, new infrastructure and then we're going to be able to put it in next week. Um, the amount of red tape and the amount of bureaucratic things that you have to go through to to deploy solar anywhere in the United States, let alone at a hospital or a facility like that, is really extensive and it creates, it, it just makes, it drives the costs way up. Um, I would hope that around the world, particularly in some of the emerging markets or the developing world, that you're, you're not facing some of those sort of same friction points from a bureaucratic perspective. Um, but one of the things that I think is great for us to think about, and I think that we as an industry need to give ourselves credit for here in the United States, even though we're not the largest solar market in the world, is, is that anything that we do here to further uh, the, the implementation of solar here does have uh, a benefit to the rest of the world as we get more efficient in terms of how we make solar, as we get more efficient in terms of how we make batteries and, and how we can distribute those things. I think that there is going to be a huge benefit to the disaster relief effort and to uh, the microgrid effort and to the emerging markets and providing access, clean access to to electricity for the for the developing world, and I think we need to give ourselves some credit for that. But we also need to figure out ways to, in industry, continue to to break down barriers, those friction points, to make your effort, uh, your the dollars that are the precious dollars that are going through the nonprofit even more efficient, um, because you can deploy more solar and more batteries for less dollars if you're not having to fight the same sort of like local headwinds. Yeah, that's exactly right. I've heard a statistic like in Australia, like rooftop solar is the same price per watt as uh, utility scale. Like there's not the friction costs of the interconnection permitting like we have here. And where we have projects yeah. that have we haven't heard back from the utility on the interconnection agreement like since April, like over five months. In the California, mm -hmm. there's some NEM two to NEM three backlog, but that's not an excuse. Like it's that's a ridiculous delay and slowdown. Yeah. Well, the the most expensive you you live in California. The most expensive solar in the world is residential solar in California, um, and and California uh, residential solar in California compared to residential solar in Australia, it's about a third the cost. So. Um, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And there's some reasons for that. We could, we've talked actually a fair bit about some of those reasons on this podcast, because obviously one of the things that we're most interested in industry, as well as on the non, not-for-profit, the charitable side is trying to, to, to provide access to renewable power at a much lower cost. Even if it's for profit, we still want to provide that access to, 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 um, you know, uh, to, to, to as many people as possible for as low a cost as possible. I am curious if you wouldn't mind just elaborating a little bit more on this. What are some of the sort of like social business models or social, some of the for-profit companies that some of the things that you would like to see having spent time all around the world that you think are real missed opportunities for people that maybe were, are looking for running a for-profit uh, business, but want to have an impact. What are some of the big opportunities you think are being missed around the world? 
Oh, that's a good and hard question. Um, I think, I mean, I think looking at, I guess, focus in our country, looking at ways to develop um, solar. Well, I think we're, we're missing the, the resiliency point quite a bit, I think, but that's what I'm focused on. And so uh, I'm thinking about things that we must, um, that we must keep powered uh, because people's lives depend on it. And so uh, the idea of more microgrids, I think one thing I'm thinking a lot about is this idea of portable mobile power. And I know a lot of that's coming out, but we're affixing, or, or just take my house, but or take the health centers we're working with. You know, my, my little Chevy Bolt, uh, all electric Chevy Bolt that I love, and I'm thankful that they're keeping working, they're keeping manufacturing, is sitting next to my little power wall in my house. And it has, what, nearly five times the capacity in kilowatt hour of my power wall. There's, at some point, there's no need for both, right? So we would, to your earlier question, we might not permanently affix batteries to a medical facility because there's maybe if you can drive it to them and plug it, you know, plug the clinic into it and then they can use it as a medical, you know, they all have mobile medical vehicles anyway. So maybe there's a way that you don't need the permanent battery. You can, you'll, you'll have a way in an outage to just drive your vehicle there as long as you have a fleet within sort of 50 miles. So I'm, I'm kind of curious your take on where you see, if, if you see it going that way. Yeah. We, we've interviewed a lot of people in the EV space and on the solar space on this channel. Obviously, th those two industries overlap. I mean, it's you're talking about production of energy and you're talking about powering your life and your home with energy. And, and uh, I would say that that's a glaring inefficiency in our entire, uh, you know, grid system, right? So you have, and the same thing with me, like at my house, I have 150 kilowatt hours of batteries in my garage. Um, that I don't have access to. Now there's a lot of sort of considerations, right? Like what's the, what's the cost or what's the, the negative impact to the batteries? Um, but you know, if I have my car at work that I can charge, uh, at very low cost power and then take that somewhere that needs access, I mean, 150 kilowatt hours of batteries will run my home for an entire week. And that's, um, that independent of the solar that's on the roof that's generating. So with the solar that's on the roof and the batteries, in the car, I mean, essentially, I could go off grid if there were if if the home had been wired such and you had the bi-directional charging that would be required in order to be able to do that. And a lot of car manufacturers are trying to solve for that, but the trade-off for them right now is what what's the impact to these batteries? We're trying to sell more cars, and if we materially degrade the efficiency and effectiveness of the batteries, where one of the number one reasons people say that they don't buy electric cars is because of range anxiety or the loss of range or the batteries having to replace the batteries at some significant cost in a short period of time. Those are some of the challenges that need to be addressed. But without a doubt, uh, there are inefficiencies in this marketplace. And that's one of them, right? So the fact that you have to have batteries for your backup for your home and for your business and then different batteries to power your car uh, and solar at your house that you can't benefit at your work and solar at work that you can't use to benefit you at the house uh, with, with uh, you know, being able to take batteries that you're kind of dragging back and forth between work and home uh, is certainly an inefficiency. I love the concept that you're talking about here where, you know, if you had a bunch of Rivian's, Tesla's, Bolt's that you could pull into a hospital, that would be a life-saving 
sort of donation that you could make to a hospital. I love the concept of that. You know, the the idea that like, hey, we need power here to save lives. Uh, I love the idea of that. And I don't think that we're very far from being able to implement a solution like that. It's a, it's a fantastic thought. And it, like to a, to a nod to our human humanity, um, it, it seems true every place I've ever been. There's always more people that are wanting to help in a disaster than, the, than we even know how to put them to good use. And so if you can help by as simple as driving your electric car to a location and somehow use the, just drain the battery, like what a f- fantastic way to put people to work. Yeah, well, electric buses. I mean, yeah. you, 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 could, you could fill in the blank in terms of the opportunities there. And yeah, it's one that I certainly hadn't thought of. What are some other emergency, emerging technologies or business models that you think um, excite you in this space, either on the for-profit side or certainly that helps with the emergency disaster relief uh, sector? I mean, one thing I already mentioned is this idea of a like fly, uh, flyable, portable, rapidly assembling microgrid. So um, that can, again, you can get on an airplane, on a pallet, and land somewhere, and someone on the other end can just, you know, plug the... <laughs> The combined solar panel cord uh, on one side into the battery and it, it can just work and power stuff. And I think I've seen a few attempts at it um, from different companies. None of them seem perfect quite yet. Um, it's almost like you have inverter companies, you have battery companies. Some are integrated, often they're not. And then you have solar manufacturing companies. And so this like all-in-one quick ready to go solution at least again i'm coming from a perspective of having to get something somewhere and powered quickly which is a different need than i think we often think about um is one i've been trying to find for a while yeah without a doubt you know i got into the solar space uh originally i grew up uh, uh well documented on this podcast and other places i grew up in a coal mining town in uh eastern montana and um i thought uh that that the the electricity that that coal mining, that coal-fired power plant in my hometown was providing was was life-saving and critical, and I think it is, and it was, and it's been a critical component to, um, you know, the way that we've sort of been able to sort of like develop as a country and develop as a world. Um, and that being said, fast forward some handful of years later, leave my hometown, uh, start, uh, you know, start a business in the solar space. And I think I got into it because I was trying to solve a need that I thought was, uh, was, was important to solve, which is trying to provide lower cost electricity to more people at homes, uh, particularly in California where energy costs have been surging over the last couple of decades. And it's really been over the last handful of years, uh, the last decade, I should say that I've really, uh, in some ways I have to admit accidented into the fact that we're working in an industry that is one of the largest employers, not just here in the United States, but across the country. Energy and providing access to energy is a huge employer across the country. And as the renewable energy distribution happens, more and more people are being hired. That's a fantastic thing. Secondarily, it's a renewable source of power, which obviously, again, fairly unintended, my my entrance into it was uh, the impact that it has on climate. But more recently, I've become particularly passionate about this idea of the social benefits of providing access to power you know, you can just imagine something as simple as refrigeration, um, you know, something that we certainly take for granted, providing this access to, to more people. 
And that's been one of the real sort of like uh, highlights in, in my career is realizing that anything that we do in solar is furthering those causes and benefiting the, the developing uh, the developing world and, and uh, anything that allows people to have better access, not just access, but better access to the life-saving medicine, the life-saving um, facilities that, uh, that, that we've taken for granted for, for far too long probably here at home, I think is just uh, something that's really exciting. So uh, it sounds like your original entrance was a little bit maybe just trying to find a job, but you've become passionate about it. So that being said, you know, I work in the solar space. I'm very dedicated to it. You work emergency relief. You're very dedicated to it. But for the layperson and a lot of the people that might be listening to this podcast, what are some things that you sort of like encourage uh, people to do or things that they can do to try to help um, drive change, either whether it's with climate resiliency or whether it's, uh, um, you know, trying to drive change in terms of uh, the social benefits that are associated with the causes that you're you're associated with right now? What are What are things or advice that you give to people if you're just out talking to them at a park or a club? I think the first thing I try to start with is like, it's, um, we don't live in a level playing field in a level society. Like I, I think about, I remember I, my personally and my family, even though I'd responded to a number of disasters for my life around the world, we were evacuated from a big fire in my hometown with Thomas fire in 2017 in December. And, and, you know, we had to load the, um, we used the bigger car, not the bolt. Uh, we had to load the golden retriever in the car, the two kids, whatever we could grab, because we saw the flames literally coming over the mountainside from the window right wow. here. Um, and what I realized from that is we had a car, period. We had a car. <laughs> we had gas in the car. Um, thankfully, because there was a power outage. And if we didn't have gas in the car, we couldn't have gotten gas because fuel pumps don't work when there's a power outage. So my other advice to everyone is never leave your gas tank go below a third of a tank because you never know when you might need to drive somewhere. So we left, we evacuated. We drove uh, 50 miles to a hotel that was also without power and we had money to pay for the hotel. So I, I did some looking into that and it um, less than 50% of people in our country have uh, like $500 in the bank to be able to quickly leave their home and or have a car in the first place to do it. And so these things, these events, don't it, they affect people differently. And um, I think first, to your point, like recognizing that and these lower cost of power or higher reliability of power, anything we're doing especially in, you know, affordable housing or nonprofits or health facilities. Like these are things that are actually not, it's not a climate thing necessarily, although it's also that it's not a cost savings thing necessarily, although it's also that it's a, like improving the social um, benefits to people who just have less in our, in our communities. And so, First thing is, I think, to be able to recognize that and to be able to put yourself in someone else's shoes and say, wow, you you don't have a car. You can't go anywhere. If you don't have money, you can't pay for a hotel. So what do you even do? And and you brought up the Paradise Fire earlier. I mean, it, there were like elderly people and, and elderly homes that just couldn't leave. Um, and so I, I don't know. We have to know where those people and places are, which we actually do. We have maps of these things that tell us where the highest vulnerabilities are and 
and then make really strong improvements in those areas and for those people. Um, there's a quote from a, a mayor, uh, mayor of Mississippi, Greenville, Mississippi, who, who I, what I love called, we're all in the storm, but we're not in the same boat. And so I think if we can sort of internalize that, and then you can make choices about what you want to do about that. Yeah. You know, I feel, uh, so spent most of my career actually in California more recently. I, and I'm actually at the time of the recording of this podcast, I'm in Salt Lake city area and Salt Lake is, a is very much so a prepper community. It's a community that, uh, values and understands the importance of community generally, and then has a real sort of like preparation sort of mindset, which, uh, I think is fantastic. Um, I think one of the great parts about solar and when people talk to me about solar, they're oftentimes talking to me about it from the context of preparedness, which is a little different than a lot of the parts of the country. You know, most people are thinking about it in the context of, uh, of financial savings and, and, and that's great too. And for the most part, when I'm talking to people that are talking about it in financial savings, I also say, yeah, but there's also this real preparedness. It's taking strain off the grid. It's providing resiliency to the grid. It's providing renewable power. And I'm having to sort of sell that. Here, it's a little different. And one of the nice things about working with hospitals and working with these medical centers is, is that, yes, you're providing preparedness in this situation where the grid goes down or there's grid instability, whether through unnatural or natural disasters, or it's just because of a grid instability. Um, but there's also sort of a long-term financial benefit. All the electricity the solar panels are producing on a daily basis is functional. It's usable. And that's one of the things that I've had to stress a lot since being here in Salt Lake City is, is that, yes, there is a preparedness component to solar, but there's also just a daily utility where you can provide or where you're actually getting access to the energy that's coming from the sun uh, bounteously and that you can harness a portion of that and use it to part, sort of charge your home and to power your life and and to you know move your vehicles and to 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 be a soccer mom or to be a commuter to work and you know whatever it is like that energy is just essentially untapped and we have the opportunity to tap into it but also you know to be able to to have this preparation so when you're working with these medical facilities are you oftentimes just sizing the 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 solar and the storage just to meet that sort of like emergency preparedness situation or are you sort of like helping them realizing that that, that, hey, listen, you can actually power the hospital um, or significant portions of the hospital with this, uh, you know, normally you'd think about this as preparation. Most people aren't going to run a generator to to, uh, to to power a hospital, or hopefully they're not. I mean, I would imagine in some parts of the world that is the case. Um, but there is an actual way to just actually power the hospitals. Well, how much of what you're talking about with them um, is, is centered or oriented around that and helping them understand that there is in fact an ROI to it. Yeah. As well. It's a lot of education. Again, this is new. Solar panels are not new. Batteries are relatively new. Microgrids are fairly new. So it's a lot of education. And actually recently, I mean, a few months ago, this is how new it all is. The center for Medicaid services, which governs all medical facilities that take Medicaid said that a hospital can, can, meet its backup power requirement by having a microgrid in lieu of a generator. So for the first time ever, it, they, they are saying they are reliable enough, if not more reliable, I would argue, than a generator. We found 35% of generators <laughs> didn't work after Hurricane Sandy. And many, wow. if not most, didn't work in Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria. Um, so we, we, yeah, we are, they are a daily use, obviously solar is, is, you know, spinning their meter backwards every day. 
battery is charging and discharging every day and we and it's then it's it's there in an off-grid environment so the power goes out immediately switches to the battery uh, is, is the battery the amazing part of a battery especially in a medical facility is there's no downtime so generally it can take a few seconds to kick over if, if so if you're in the middle of a procedure or, whatever, or something that can cause problems the battery is instantaneous and then we size it typically to power the entire load if it's a very large facility we'll we'll do critical loads um but then the generator is in the backup position so that if the battery dips down to 20% of charge, the generator will then kick on and, and, and charge it up. It's kind of the most efficient way to use a generator, just directly feeding the battery. And, and if it's a small facility and they don't already have a generator, we're not even adding, we're not adding one. It's just solar battery. And we can typically tell them on a normal day, again, it's harder because we're sizing it for their peak load times four hours um and then the solar is recharging it if there's clouds or if there's you know it, it, it'll affect that length of resilience but we're we're at minimum trying to give them you know a four hour um, full load which is going to accommodate most typical power outages um and to your point earlier about salt lake i agree like i think this idea of energy independence should be like the most nonpartisan issue there is, right? Like everyone, everyone likes yeah. that. It's, it it's works every day. And then you also aren't reliant on it in an outage. You can control your own destiny. It's what, so like preppers would feel good about it. Like any families with kids, I mean, it doesn't matter. And so I think, and, and now not to get too political, but I this thing in Ukraine and with Russia, like energy prices, it's now a national security. I mean, it has been a national security issue, but I think we're realizing it now. Energy prices in Europe have spiked like 400% because one guy chose yep. to go to war with another country. And so that can no longer be allowable. I think we need to better control our destiny. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, Andrew, it's been absolutely fan, uh, fantastic um, talking with you. I'm, I'm um, to get a real expert, uh, someone that's been uh, working uh, in 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 the certainly in the background, but also at the ground um, in terms of deploying and 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 driving some of the things that I've become fairly passionate about over the last handful of years in terms of being able to provide access to energy, life saving access to energy to people in the in the most critical of times. It's uh, so really, uh, I guess, uh, thank you for coming on and thank you for sharing your experiences. Um, I would love to hear what are the things that sort of like give you hope or what are some of your hot takes for the industry and for emergency re uh, disaster relief or just some of the things that really keep you excited as, as some sort of parting thoughts here? <clears throat> well, I'm hopeful, uh, again, not, not political, but I'm hopeful that it seems like at least this administration has realized the need to further prioritize and incentivize this stuff, especially in the communities that I work and care about in our country, which are these low income energy communities, former fossil fuel communities. There's there, there seems to be uh, at least currently uh, a recognition that it, there needs to be additional incentives in certain communities. It's probably like the one you grew up in that um, has lost jobs because of this transition. And so the idea that we need to have a just transition to this clean energy, we need to train 
more, way more electricians, a million electricians, right? Like, but there's pro programs and, and incentives to, to do that. That the, the fact that of the projects we're looking at, you know, over 2000 locations can get a 50% direct payment from the IRA to take half the cost off the project is a huge change. Um, after nonprofits were sort of left out of that rebate ability or the tax credit ability for so many years. I wish it had gone further, but I mean, this is something. So, uh, I, I, and then there's the cost of everything coming down. I think as Bill McKibben said, um, cheapest way we can create power now is to take a big sheet of glass and point it at the big ball of sun in the sky. And that was come <laughs> from the, you know, the space program in the fifties when it used to cost 10,000 bucks a watt or whatever. So now it's not even an argument about cost. I don't think, I think it's just a fact that this is the cheapest way we can do it to your point, interconnections, speeds need to get better. Permitting needs to get better. Um, so there's still issues, but I am, but I'm hopeful. I am very hopeful in where the trajectory is headed. Um, and you know, thanks to you and your, your being a part of this industry for a long time to, to help yeah, well, again, there. Andrew, thanks so much for coming on and talking with us about these critical items and critical issues. And, and really, I think it's a new and better perspective that each of us in this order should need to hear and, and to be reminded of and, and something that we can, uh, you know, and I'm not, I'm not saying that because, um, you know, I, I want people to just to, to feel better about being in the solar industry. There's plenty of reasons to feel good about being in the solar industry, but it is great for us to understand that uh, the things that we're doing here in the United States have a big impact in the developing and emerging markets. And, and in terms of disaster relief, solar uh, d disaster relief, solar and storage are critical components and that we're all playing a small portion or a small part uh, to help uh, the proliferation of that and the access to the energy for the people that are that are in dire need of it in those really critical times. So, Andrew, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure to speak with you today.